0: Tonight's talk is about pure exploration. Being interested in the truth. I'd like to begin with a quotation from a poem by Anna Akhmatova. And this was um, something she wrote uh, after a long time away from a place she loved a lot in Central Asia. It's your lynx eyes, Asia, that have spied something in me, have ferreted out something buried, born of silence, and fatiguing and difficult, like midday termes heat, as if the whole of proto memory were flowing into the mind like molten lava, as if I were drinking my own sobs out of another's hand. This is uh, one of the great gifts of Asia and and the Buddhist practice that he taught. This is about facing how life is on deeper and deeper levels. One of my first uh, spiritual friends was a professor I had in college. uh, And the time that um, probably he made the deepest impression on me was a time when there were uh, a lot of riots in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts. There were uh, a lot of ghetto riots, a lot of um, people protesting welfare and Vietnam, um, and then there were all kinds of difficulties at the school around diversity, but also just power structures, and there was um, a huge demonstration about to happen on our campus, and I was involved uh, with the Black Panthers at the time from New Haven, uh, which is a long story. which I think I'll go into on the talk I give on aversion (laughs) next. (laughs) At any rate, uh, I was very outraged at the time, especially about the draft happening and all of my male friends having to deal with either going to Vietnam or not going and what that implied and meant. Um, So this was a time of great... um, inner turmoil, and outer turmoil, I think, for a lot of us. And I think that time is here again. Um, and this uh, professor was a naturalist, and I took lots of courses with him in environmental education and biology. And he was a Quaker. Uh, and he his heart was just... Very open and childlike, um, but he was really um, a master in silence as well as the mystery of life. And he, instead of doing what a lot of professors did, which was either to kind of shut down and not deal with what was happening and and go on teaching or to quit, that was that seemed to be the range of what was happening. In, in school, for me at that time, I saw him get so deeply distressed, and um, he was completely committed to nonviolence as a way of life and a path, And he got so upset the day that campus was about to blow up, um, that uh he went out to the woods for the day, didn't say anything he 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 didn't come to classes which was unheard of. He just didn't show up. Uh, and I was there when he came back at the end of the day. And it was like I was given this transmission. Like I felt like I'd give, been given this complete infusion of peace and what it meant to be committed to nonviolence and committed to peace. And it was extraordinary for me. I'd never met anybody like that. I, you know, I'd just never come across um, somebody that had such a transformational um, influence on me. And I think it's really helpful sometimes in our life to meet someone who really embodies what we aspire to in terms of nonviolence and peace. And, And the heart being open and connected rather than shut down. To the difficulty in the world. The Buddha said that the world rests on suffering. And we will talk a lot about this during this retreat in, in terms of what that really means and what the significance of that is, um, one of the great truths of existence is that the world rests on suffering. And technically, in terms of how we try to explain that here, here is in relationship to understanding change. So we talk about that we're born, we take birth into this world, of just momentary change, this momentary stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So this is the conditioning that we're born into. And our attempt to um, make peace with that when we're young and what we learn uh, as a defense system with this is to try to control that. So any way in which we try to control life from this perspective, from this deeper perspective of understanding truth, is violence. And so we talk about, you know, when an unpleasant feeling arises, whether it's a sound, or a sight, or a smell, or a taste, or a touch, or a thought, we can't control if that unpleasant experience at one of the sense door arises. Uh, But our attempts to control that out of withdrawing from it with fear or, you know, denial, not admitting that it's happening or pushing against it with aversion or rage, uh, the Buddha said was suffering, that the world rests on this and that we don't understand it. And then say a pleasant feeling arises, and again, we have no control over that. It can happen any moment at, at, with a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste, touch, thought. This is how vulnerable this world is that we take birth into. If something's pleasant and we're not aware of it, you know, enjoyment, enjoyment, <laughs> enjoyment, we start to hold on and that that holding on or clinging to it, not realizing that that's what we're doing, getting identified with that. Controlling is the suffering again. And, And we really have to kind of let this sink in, not so much in our thought process, but really into the heart, into the body. How do we suffer? And it's that attempt to control the flow of life rather than to drop into the flow of life. So the suffering is the fighting life, but in, re- in in regard to what we're doing in this practice, we're actually fighting for our life. We're fighting for life by doing this practice. One way to describe what we're doing is we're trying to replace the conditioned defense system uh, that, that takes place, the aversion and the attachment or the delusion, with mindfulness or love and kindness or compassion. As we move into the mindfulness, the, the love and kindness, the compassion, we're more and more safe and the more we're identified with aversion and attachment as a way of trying to control life, we're less and less safe. Sometimes when we hear this, then we get a sense that we should be <laughs> mindful, yeah. And anytime that we're trying to be mindful in that way, that we should be, You know, this is also imposing a kind of violence on the system rather than the inspiration coming from the inside, a kind of a pure motivation to be with the truth. So investigation or interest and a joyful interest are born out of this deep desire to be in alignment with the truth of things with the flow of how things are. And it's not that we won't desire life to be different. It's that we're not limited by our desire for things to be different. And that's really important. It's not that we won't, you know, it's understandable that we try to make life different. It's just that we start to see that we don't have to be oppressed by that desire for things to be different. And instead of the feeling that we should be mindful, there'll be a a deeper place where we see, out of great care for ourselves, that it's out out of connecting with how things are. You know, that that that, that being in touch with reality will actually feel better. (laughs) It's more peaceful. It's less violent. When I was teaching the retreat on the vineyard um, that I mentioned before um, for the group of people in their 20s, one of the young men that came to the retreat had just been working, working, busy, busy, just like, he was so stressed. I voted him the most stressed person (laughs) who showed up at the retreat. (laughs) You know, and I could see, oh, you know, that I don't even think he knew what he was doing there. He was just like just pushed so hard to get there. And then about three days into the retreat, in the morning, question and answers that we have, um, he raised his hand and he said, oh, you know, I woke up this morning and I just had this thought, oh no, I'm opening. He actually used a different word than, oh, no. It was like, oh, <laughs> a better word than no. But it was just like <laughs> more expressive of how he felt. You know, it's just like, oh, I forgot that this was going to happen. I'm opening. You, know, you know that feeling? It's like, oh, oh, that's what I'm doing here. You know, and so that there's that, not exactly that pure interest. Uh, <laughs> But there comes the time where you just you just day after day you just start settling in. I think we all do it in spite of ourselves. you know it's just in spite of our desire for things to be different, you know there is that deeper love of the truth that just has us keep doing this, so yes, we're born into this vulnerable stream of change and The process of opening, oh no, I'm opening, is literally, if you imagine a flower bud opening. We open to the range of joy and sorrow in the world. And we really want to control that. We want to just open to the pleasant. Of course we do but that's not how it happens and that's what's so hard for us this is the only reason it's hard we do want to open and we are interested in the truth there's just this little teeny detail <laughs> you know that we don't get to pick and choose what we're opening to you know that's just the hard part you know <laughs> the easy part is when we're opening say to the beauty of the leaves right now i mean it's so achingly beautiful, you know, and it's so fleeting, uh, and it's just like amazing. I, you know, I just feel like um, my mother. When I was born, I was born dead. She was pronounced dead, but she she came back to life. But she died when I was thirteen, and there was always that feeling that she was going to go. Uh, and when she did die, the only thing that helped me was the autumn leaves. Year after year, I would look at this beauty and I would think, how can dying and death be so beautiful? You know, there must be something to this more than, you know, it's just like, uh, it was just such a, a fortunate, to me, birth to be born around here and to see this color of light coming right at the time of dying. And yet we're so afraid of it. It's so interesting. You know, I think that this is the most wonderful time of year to settle into a long retreat because so much of what we're doing is facing the birth and death of things. The birth of death of things, the birth and death of things. And to just just be confronted with this beauty of things passing away, you know, and I know, I mean, the last few years, those of you who know me, I've been through so many people dying. And this light that comes out at the end is very similar to the colors of the leaves. And this process that we're doing here is very much dying. And dying, and dying to controlling, to manipulating, and learning to just be with how things are. So we open to the sunlight as well as the dark. And we open to the joy as well as the difficult. You know, that's that's what happens, is we open a little, we open to the range, and then we get some equanimity with that. We usually open faster than equanimity happens. So we'll open, scream a little, (laughs) (laughs) finally get enough equanimity with that, and then we drop, we open again, it hurts like hell, it's very beautiful, there'll be that range again. Will peek out. This is great, <laughs> and then it's like, ah, what did I bargain for? You know, we finally get some equanimity with that. This is the process of just gradually opening and opening to how things are. Investigation or interest um, takes deeper and deeper forms on on a long retreat like this. So. For example, um, in terms of patana, vipassana, what we're doing is that we're allowing whatever appears to show itself to our consciousness. You know, nama rupa, physicality, mentality, it's like it's making itself known to us. And so the transformation that happens or the insight is, ha- is happening by us dropping into that by dropping into what's appearing and making itself known to us. But it's not an intellectual process. And so insight isn't something that happens by us really sitting and really thinking about something, but the courage it takes to be vulnerable enough to drop into the flow of how things are. Investigation is what allows us to do this. So, for example, anicca or change, a characteristic of it is that it doesn't endure. So the texts say about this, not being in existence at first, it comes into being and ceases to exist, disappears, dissolves away. And it says, I love this one, it says, a streak of lightning in the sky has all the characteristics of a Nietzsche. That's all we have to use as a metaphor. Just a streak of lightning in the sky has all the characteristics of change. It doesn't last long. It disappears instantly. And so facing this is part of the process of Insight, understanding, and again on deeper and deeper levels. So understanding dukkha is really based on this insight about change. That when we realize that what appears doesn't last a second, anything, again, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, thought, that whatever appears doesn't even last a second. It's constantly dissolving. We realize what? It's huge, this insight, that whatever appears isn't dependable. That isn't easy for us to face. And again, we, might, we have glimpses of it, and deeper glimpses, and deeper glimpses of it. But again, this isn't meant to just happen up in our thought process. When we feel this, it's hard. Insight into Dukkha doesn't usually make us jump for joy. In fact, my experience as a teacher is that most people miss it. Most people miss the the insight. And it takes a lot of encouragement and help for people to realize they're having the insight because usually aversion to the insight happens and we get caught up in the aversion to the understanding that nothing's dependable. And then we often go down the track of self-hatred or despair or hopelessness, because it's easier to do that than to feel the utter vulnerability of that. And one of the great things about this is that when we realize that that utter vulnerability is something we all share, we share it with each chipmunk, with each bird, you know, with each person in this room, and that it's the great avoidance of this on this planet, that causes so much suffering. You know, so again, I know that, that, you know, sometimes to get through a day on retreat, even when it's a nice day, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's relatively easy maybe one day, but it doesn't stay easy every single day. And it's often because somewhere around the line, insight into dukkha <laughs> is there. Insight into change is not so hard, you know compared to this one around the vulnerability and then the third insight into anatta is interesting because often the, this third one is like pulling a thorn out of the heart it feels that good and you can't make this happen you can't make any of these happens happen but that sometimes it just appears it's like a kind of grace and I can tell you, when I was on retreat, the first time it happened, I was eating a banana at breakfast time. And I thought that insight into anatta should happen when I was on the cushion, in the meditation hall. So this experience started to happen, and I was, I was rejecting it, because I thought you shouldn't have it when you're eating a banana. I mean, it was, it's amazing, it's amazing what we can do <laughs> with insight. You know, so this can happen as you lay down to go to sleep. This can happen as you're remembering your favorite song. It doesn't, it's not dependent on, insight isn't going to depend on if you're with a breath. It might happen with a breath, but it can literally happen anytime. And this experience is, it's like this understanding. It's just like, oh, all of a sudden we realize, oh, this emotion isn't mine. We, it's just we realize, oh, this thought isn't mine. Or this body paint isn't mine. And it's very liberating. <laughs> and, you know, we can try to talk around it or, or, you know, try to paint an impressionistic picture of this. But it takes a lot of trust to realize that this is the truth and that it will appear. That insight will appear if you just keep going along. You don't have to make it happen. In fact, you can't make it happen. But it will happen. It's inevitable that these insights will happen if we connect with our experience. In regard to connection, because I think this is so important, if, if in a receiving life, means that we have to be vulnerable. And being able to connect with something, whether it's we're connecting our attention with the breath, or connecting our attention with resistance, or connecting our attention with a green bean, or a Brussels sprout, you know, whatever it is, whatever we're connecting our attention with. Um, If we're busy trying to get something, or if we're trying to rescue, or if we're trying to get better or improve, then there's no possibility for truth to happen. And the most difficult part of this is that when we're willing to connect and flow with how things are, we have to value the fleetingness of that. Because these, these times we're really connected are very fleeting. And we all know that's true. We all know that these peak experiences happen and we're really, we feel really connected. But they are very fleeting. And so we have to not only value fleetingness, but we need to value disappointment and loss. We have to value the pain as well as the joy as being a natural part of the flow of things. So when we really drop into the natural flow of things, we realize it's okay to be with pain. We value pain as part of life. And I'd like to give a very simple example, but it's simple, (laughs) but I'm hoping it transfers to things that are difficult. For example, lately, Whenever I have time to go outside to go for a walk or a bike ride, it's been raining. And it's just been uncanny, you know, and, you know, it's just been amazing in the last two weeks. So, so say that happens, that we desire to go outside and it's raining, but the thought comes up, I wish it was sunny. Now what, what's pure exploration there? You know, this is, think about it, what would be pure exploration there? Most of us will think that that means that we have to be okay with it raining. And I'd like you to really take this in, because it seems like a simple example, but it's how we get fooled. So so if we have the thought, I wish it was sunny... And we think that we have to be okay with it raining. We can internalize that we're doing the practice wrong. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I'm not okay with it being rainy. Uh, but the truth is that I'm upset that it's raining. I mean, maybe you weren't that day, but say, you know, just this is with anything though. It could be that we're upset that aversion has happened, or we're upset that we didn't get the the lunch we wanted, or you know, whatever. So it's just like um, being okay with not being okay with something, is mindfulness. Another way to say that is being cool with not being cool with it. (laughs) Being cool with not being cool with it. Falling into the natural flow of things. Being in alignment with the truth. You know, so this is this is a very simple example, but it's where we suffer. And it's where we suffer a lot in the practice, especially around the appearance of aversion or the appearance of attachment, the appearance of anger or fear or whatever, loneliness. Do we have that willingness or movement toward connecting with the experience because it's the truth, rather than thinking that, we shouldn't be having, having that experience. So when we really are <laughs> okay with not being okay with something, when we are able to f- drop into the flow of how things are, there is such a sweetness to these moments. It's wordless, it's soft, and it's a totally released state. And we really do accept whatever that's appearing is, is enough and that's that's when we really get a sense of nonviolence, that whatever is appearing is enough, just enough. And to remember that the appearance of those kind of experiences are fleeting. And that's why it's hard. So we'll have this these moments of pure exploration. And then usually, when purity happens, say there's some mindfulness, there's some equanimity, there's some concentration, there's just the factors come together a bit, when that happens, when it starts to end, is when we often feel this endless longing, or grief, or attachment. And this process requires the valuing of those experiences as well, as equally as important As the peak. Because that's real connection versus fake interest. It's real connection with how things are. And we can fool ourselves, and we can fool ourselves, and we can fool ourselves. And it's possible to start getting through the, the denial system around thinking that certain experiences are more important than other experiences. This retreat that we did on the vineyard for ten days... um, there were some mix-ups around vehicles and getting the food there in one truck. Um, we brought all the food from here, <laughs> there. Um, and then we didn't exactly count on the ferry schedules to be difficult to get the vehicles on and off the island. So to make a long story short, my family that lives nearby um, on the mainland decided to have this big party um, on a Saturday night, um, just as the retreat was ending, and they don't understand when I can't come to something like that i mean for in their minds for me to be a half hour ferry ride away and not come it's just it's it's just way beyond their wildest dreams of understanding so if I am close, sometimes I try to make what they think is a personal (laughs) appearance. You know, it's never long enough. You know, I mean, I'm just like, you know, in such another planet of them. But I've learned over the years to try to show up sometimes if I'm close. So I realized there were all these difficulties with getting this truck back to the mainland um, because of the ferry schedules, and it was um, Memorial Day. So I thought, hey, you know, kill two birds with one stone, right? I'll bring the truck back earlier than the retreat ends, do the family reunion, and then, you know, get the bus, get back that night. You know, this was my plan, right? (laughs) And everything went well on my way. It was amazing, like I found my way to this restaurant and, you know, the ferry was on time and it was, you know, when I'm teaching a retreat like that, it's very hard to break the rhythm of it and I just kind of had it all down, you know, so, and then, you know, then there's facing this huge (laughs) party (laughs) and kind of getting all involved with that and my great niece, Brenna, who's five and um, is very attached to me, didn't want me to go when the time came where I was running late. And I already was sort of running late. And just to let you know, there was one fairy that I could catch back. Um, And there were people picking me up. So she wanted to dance one more time. And I was like, no. And she's like, yes, please. Auntie Michelle, please, please. And she gets on the floor. You know, I mean, that's, (laughs) she always gets on the floor and just kind of like, like, you know a koala bear or something. I don't know. She just does this thing that is so seductive. You know, it's just so hard to run away from. So I said, okay, one more dance. And I knew, I just knew I shouldn't do it. So I, you know, did this one more thing and I'm running out there. And then I, you know, start back and I get lost. You know, I start trying to drive back to the, where, you know, the car is supposed to be parked. Um, and then I finally found my way and I got behind a drunk driver. And that was when I started to tighten. You know, I was doing okay, doing okay, it's okay, I can't find my way. And then this drunk driver, it was amazing. It was like we were going two miles per hour. You know, it was just incredible. And he was, you know, was weaving, and it was like, mm mm-hmm, you know. And it was just, I felt like I was, I just couldn't let go of the idea that I had to be at this ferry at this time, and I was just getting tighter and tighter. And then I finally made it back to this main road, but it was the wrong place. I hadn't really known the way. So then I had to stop at a 7-Eleven, and it was very late. By the time I finally pulled into this parking lot where you're supposed to catch a bus, so you're supposed to park your car there. So I pull in, and I grew up here, so I don't take local people who can be really negative that personally but (laughs) i rolled down my window and i can kind of give it back to people if i need to i roll i rolled down i rolled down the window and this guy was just like you're never gonna make it just you know it's hopeless and i'm like thanks (laughs) that's nice and uh but i really there was a bus sort of there kind of with all these people in it so and he said well You might find this one place way down there. So I went tearing down, and this was a huge truck I was in, and I couldn't park it. Like, it was just this little space, huge truck, up this kind of bank. And it was not my truck. I didn't want to ruin it. Um, (laughs) So I was really, again, one of those places like, oh, no, what am I going to do now? And then this very old man came driving along in a golf cart. It was like a surreal Fellini movie, you know. It was so weird. And so I said, great, you know. And I said, could you park this truck? And he said, oh, no, that's against the law. I can't do that for you. So I'm like, okay. So he helped me, which took a really long time. You know, turn the wheel this way, turn the wheel this way. I finally get the thing parked. And he said, it's not safe to walk to the bus at this time of night. So I said, okay, could I have a ride and he said yes but I have to pick up all these other people over there and it was just one of these again long drawn out oh you can't believe how tight I was you know I was just like (laughs) so we finally get to this bus Um, and I didn't realize that this is the important part here I was thinking that nothing was going my way right got lost the drunk driver it was like it felt like everything was conspiring against me to catch this ferry and i walk in the bus and everybody's furious at me i mean it was just it was just amazing i felt it was just everyone was so mad and i didn't quite get it uh, but first of all they were all waiting for me to park the car and you know do that whole thing so that was one thing but then it turned out i finally found out that all those people in the bus were made to park at a parking lot about 10 or 15 miles up the road. And I was the only one allowed into the parking lot. Isn't that, you know, so like, as it turned out, if I hadn't been late, if I hadn't been that late, I would have never made the ferry. this is happening for us a lot. I mean, you know, it's like we keep thinking that everything's conspiring against us, right? And yet we are, in some bigger picture, being protected. And that requires so much trust. You know, here's this, you know, we're born human, you know, and considering in the Buddha's cosmology, There's 32 planes of existence. We're fifth from the bottom. You know, it's really important to keep that in mind. (laughs) At least I do. I I mean, we are not considered highly evolved beings, you know. And when I get furious at how the politics are, but just everything on the planet, I have to remind myself again and again, if from the bottom, (laughs) you know, just what am I expecting? You know, I mean, what are we expecting in terms of ourselves? (laughs) Never mind our fellow yogis (laughs) or whatever. It's it's just to remember that we're born in this existential predicament and that facing anicca, dukkha, anatta, you know, it takes tremendous courage and patience and understanding that how our life is unfolding will seem like it's not going our way, but in many ways, it's just right for what we need to be growing. And so I will really assure you whatever you're struggling with at this retreat, what will seem like an obstacle will actually be your best teacher. And it's so hard to see that again and again. You know, because what we're trying to learn here is how to receive aversion and attachment, how to connect with it, and not to get identified with it, yeah? And so whatever, that, whatever we're having aversion or attachment with is really teaching us how to work with it. But we keep thinking if we can just get rid of the situation, then we'll be free. And this fools us again and again. It's meant to fool us because, of course, if you've worked on it in one level, it's bound to hit you <laughs> on a deeper level because that's the purification of what we're doing. Another way to put this in terms of trusting the process, because there's that bigger way of describing like that, like this trip, to the fairy. Uh, but on another level, um, say we have any physical pain. Over the years that I've done this practice, there have been times when my body will completely give out. Not not just a little, just like my back went out, like, incredibly. Uh, and the first time that happened, and it was like three months bed rest, and, you know, long ways of trying to work with it, um, And then whenever my back went out after that, if I thought that I got rid of it, I would suffer. And it was like my litmus test for freedom. That was my real first litmus test for seeing if I was really free or not. And it taught me everything about freedom. Because say you've worked with something like fear, and you think, that's not going to arise anymore, I got rid of it. We might not even think we're thinking like that until it surfaces again, it appears again. And if we think, oh no, not this again, I thought I got rid of that in therapy 25 years ago. You know, whatever, You know, I'm joking. But it's just this, this, anything that appears that we think we got rid of and it appears, it's not freedom to think you got rid of it. Freedom is really getting that if you have the skill of mindfulness or compassion, we don't have to get rid of anything. And in the human world, we don't, you know, to understand that that's what freedom is, then as you go through each day, it's really realizing that every situation, every moment, is a, there's a possibility of learning how to work with aversion and attachment rather than trying to control the situation so that we get the least amount of pain. And we don't have to avoid the pleasure. We don't have to avoid pain or pleasure. So over time I started to see that the places in my body that were really chronically painful were actually places in my body that sacrificed itself for me that protected me. And here I was, hating these places in my body all these years. And it was so painful when I started realizing it. Just like, wow, here's, I thought that this part of my body was weak and I had to make it get better. But in actual fact, that <clears throat> tightness in the body was holding me until I could experience the aversion or attachment in the mind that actually created that tight place in the body. So again, there was this complete shifting from hating the neck pain or the back pain or whatever. I mean, some people get a meat hook right in the back of their heart center. You know, I mean, you usually get it somewhere, right? It's, you can't avoid body pains. It's just impossible. You know, you might be lucky and maybe one of the types that it's not as intense as others, but still, somewhere along the line, we have to face again that what we think as, what we think is an obstacle will really be the teacher. So in terms of the metaphor of a flower opening and the practice being one of awakening of a flower opening we tend to want to pull the petals open. But that's just aversion or attachment. And to be able to know that wherever we are is just right for us and to trust that that works um, safely because as we're able to open to that place of opening aversion, attachment, there'll be the skill to work with that level and then we're free at that level. And then we're ready for a little more. (laughs) And then we'll be ready for a little more. And it happens gradually for a reason. I did a a self-retreat this spring around here and um it was really wonderful and interesting to be here when the lake and the stream and the puddles were like frozen and then like it would warm up a little bit and they would thaw and then it would it would freeze again and they would they would freeze then they would thaw then they would freeze and then they'd thaw and we're we're going to start doing that now the spring and fall are like that you know how cold it was this morning you know that's the cold will start coming in and then it'll warm up and then it's like thaw freeze thaw freeze and if you kind of get interested in that you can become interested in aversion and attachment cuz aversion an and an attachment are like the freeze it's just the mind and body tighten cuz we're we're not we're trying to control we we don't like the flow of things as they are, and it's just okay. It's like if you really can trust that you can let the wanting come and go by itself, the aversion come and go by itself. And the more we understand that it's, it's hatred that hates, it's not us that hates, ever. It's fear that fears, it's not us that fears, ever. It's wanting that wants, it's not us that wants. You know, in the same way, it's wisdom that is wise. It's not us that's wise. But we want to think that, right? (laughs) It's metta that has metta. It's not us that has metta. And so it it goes for both ways. And the more we start taking um, it all, less and less personally, the more we have the ease with that thā, Melt, thaw, melt, the more interest we'll have in exploring. So if we take the idea of change or transformation, we're not trying to change anything about the moment that appears at all. What changes is the attention the attention can care, the attention can connect with wisdom. Um, And that gives life, it gives us our life rather than resistance. So we don't bypass our life. We're not meant to be bypassing life by doing this practice. We're meant to be really embodying life more and more. And that's the change. We're not changing Life, we're changing our relationship to life so that we don't bypass it. When we talk about peace in this practice, <clears throat> one of the words that can be used is cessation. And I would like to just describe the possibility of two ways we see that. There's the cessation of control. That's one aspect of peace. And cessation of control means that um, there isn't any identification with aversion or attachment, not that it doesn't appear. So that's the true cessation of control. And then there's the cessation of the controller. And that's um, the cessation of any identification with the knowing mind itself. And so, there's those are the two ways that cessation happens, and that's really nonviolence or peace. And I plan to talk a lot more about that, you know, in relationship to the rest of my talks. But that, that. Um, That isn't the cessation of life. It's the cessation of control and controller. And hopefully we can even become interested when nothing feels like it's working and when we get lost. You know, that, that's also inevitable in the practice. And if, if it feels like nothing works, and if we're really identified, that's the time that takes the greatest courage. And it is possible to just really be aware. Oh, lost. Confused. Identified. And it's okay. We don't have to really um, do anything with that, but notice it and then find a way to be here while we do that. So it might mean that usually being outside a bit or having a cup of tea or not. You know, it just each person finds their way with that, and that will change as well. The more comfortable we get with getting lost and confused, you know, the less we have to um, take tons of space with it. But taking tons of space with that can be helpful if we're struggling with it. So I'd like to end with a poem by Wu Men. It's about understanding change. And being okay with not being okay or... <laughs> being cool. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow, and winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Ah, each moment is the best season of our life. Sleepiness, rain, darkness, light. Let's sit for a minute.